thank you very much um, for coming from me as well. Um, my name is Morni Wernig. I'm in the um, Department of Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic here at the University of Cambridge alongside uh, here with my colleague Sharon Arbuthnot. And um, our four other colleagues have come all the way from University College Dublin, and we're really grateful to them for that. Um, Aidan O'Sullivan, Brendan O'Neill, Maeve Lestrange, and uh, Dolores Carney. And together, what we're going to try and do is give you a taste, quite literally, of everyday life in medieval Ireland, drawing on archaeological sources. Our UCD colleagues are all archaeologists. And textual sources, that's what Sharon and I do, so we hope you enjoy it. And there will be an opportunity for um, questions um, at the end, and um, let's see how it goes. Aidan. <laughs> okay, so my name is Aidan O'Sullivan. I'm a professor of archaeology in University College Dublin. Um, and our overall title is Everyday Life in Medieval Ireland, um, the craft of archaeology and the power of words. Um, so we're going to be trying to mix up archaeology, experimental archaeology, linguistics, early Irish history, narrative literature, a great big kind of mash-up and mish-up of, of different sources to give you some senses of, of, of everyday life in early medieval Ireland. Um, the first thing I would say is in Ireland we have the richest early medieval archaeological landscape anywhere in the world. Um, somebody told me once that there are something like 80 to 90 known Anglo-Saxon settlements uh, in, in, in England. Um, there are at least 60 to 70,000 early medieval settlement enclosures in Ireland. Um, uh, um, it, is, it is going on for about a third of our entire archaeological record. Something happened in the 6th and the 7th century which led to a booming population, transformation in technologies in agriculture, which led to the widespread occupation of the entire island um, and, of, and uh, the use of the landscape in an incredibly intensive way. Most people, unlike elsewhere in early medieval Europe, lived inside settlement enclosures. We call them in Ireland rats, uh, from the old Irish rat, meaning uh, the, the embankment, the embankment around the, the uh, enclosure. Um, and the enclosed space itself was called a less, or the lis. And, and you know, in modern Ireland, uh, a widespread across the island, we have place names which reflect a thousand-year-old uh, 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 names from the past. So Raheen Moor, the little big fort, uh, uh, Liss Duggan, the, uh, uh, um, the Less of, of Duggan, and so on. And these ring forts, they look like this, probably. This is a, an actual example here from County Tipperary. Go anywhere in Ireland, talk to the local farmer, say, is there a fairy fort around here? Um, and you say, yeah, sure, there's one out the back. And you can see the way they're defined, uh, um, bank and a ditch, a bank and a ditch, and, and the multiplicity of those banks and ditches is, is a reflection of social status. So lordship, power, uh, um, uh, uh, clientship, uh, social relations are all played out in these spaces. This is a reconstruction of one here at uh, the UCD Centre for Experimental Archaeology and Material Culture, a plan of an excavated site and an artist's reconstruction of what they might have, have looked like. One of the things we want to talk about this evening is well, what were their houses like? What did people, uh, you know, where did people live? Uh, um, where did they, they sleep? Where did they eat? Where did they tell stories about themselves and their neighbours? Um, how did they learn how to go on in the world from, from childhood onwards? Um, in the 7th and the 8th century, most of these houses are round houses or circular houses, typically about six to seven metres across in, in diameter. And in excavations like this here at Deer Park Farms, we can see not only the entrance into one of these rats, with a paved entrance gateway, um, and then these round structures in the, in the centre. Um, but one of the interesting things to us as archaeologists is they're very distinctive in terms of their architecture. There's no heavy timbers in them. There's no elements in these houses which is thicker than your wrist. So these are buildings which could be seven, eight metres across in diameter with no internal roof supports. So one of our, one of our challenges at the Centre for Experimental Archaeology uh, and material culture in University College Dublin was to try and reconstruct one of these houses. Now, experimental archaeology is the reconstruction of past buildings, technologies, uh, foodways, uh, um, uh, uh, environmental context, and so on, in the present, in the modern day. And by so doing, to learn more about those technologies, but also to create archaeological signatures in the soil today that we can then compare and contrast with excavated archaeological evidence. So we decided that we would build one of these uh, roundhouses on the basis of, of the evidence that we have, which is just very slight hazel poles and rods. And first thing you do is you lay in uh, a foundation layer, put in your doorway, 
um, start inserting vertical rods, start weaving uh, hazel rods around us with this incredibly intricate uh, weaving technique that we know has been used in early medieval sites. And slowly you build a structure up into a dome, uh, a bit like a clocking, a uh, stone uh, building from the west of Ireland, until you get a, an overall completed structure uh, like this. Um, and then, having built the structure, we were able to use it in various different ways uh, uh, over a few years. We were able to use it, for example, for teaching students, to give them a sense of what it's like to be inside an early medieval building. Um, and people would have had that experience of coming on, the smell of the structure, the light and darkness in the interior, the ways that different parts of the house are darker or brighter than others. Um, so multiple classes, multiple courses, multiple, you know, hundreds of students would have gone through this structure in, in UCD, learning about these structures. And of course, for a student, they're encountering an early medieval roundhouse in the flesh, as it were, uh, as opposed to on a page or in a, in a photograph. So a very, very distinctive way of, of teaching. And having built the structure, then we're also able to test it. One of the things that we do in experimental archaeology is build structures or use technologies and make records of what it is that we're doing um, to try and understand them a bit more. So a lot of, of previously scholars would have said that uh, structures like this would have been full of smoke. Well, we uh, basically lit fires. We've had students sleep in this building overnight. Not me personally. I went home to my comfortable bed um, and wished everybody good luck. Um, uh, one of the students said that, that the major part of, their, of their, their couple of days that they spent there is basically keeping a fire going. Um, and a major part of labour for people in the past was basically keeping a fire going. Without a fire in one of these structures, you can, you know, you can suffer badly <coughs> from the cold. But the fire doesn't lead to an incredible amount of smoke or pollution in the interior. Um, we found pretty quickly that the smoke is drifting through the thatch. Um, so that smoke levels inside in these buildings were about 550 parts per million of particulate matter. Uh, EU unsafe levels are about 1,500. So well within EU safety levels. In terms of heat and heat loss, um, uh, heat loss is rapid. Um, on a cold day, you can get, like with the snow, you can get the temperature uh, inside in the structure 10 to 15 degrees warmer than the exterior. If you let the fire go out, within about 40 minutes, it's basically equivalent temperatures. There is a phrase in early Irish law uh, which says that, that, that the uh, household of the Mrigfair farmer must have a fire always alight. Um, and that reminds us that, that basically keeping that fire going would have been very important. And the, the fire would have been the hub of social life. That's where you would have gathered in the evenings to tell stories or to, to sing songs or, or whatever, to entertain the family. Um, and the fire would have been a symbol of the, of the, the family, the household. Um, so, for example, I remember hearing a story one time from Professor Seamus Caulfield uh, uh, from North uh, County Mayo, where in a very, very rural part of Ireland, where a, an old man died, and he was the last remaining member of his family. He had no brothers and sisters uh, uh, alive. He was the last remaining member of his family. And all the neighbours came in from their surrounding valley, and they took embers from the fire and brought them back to their own home fire, so that the fire of that family would never be extinguished, would never go out. So you can see what, what the importance of the fire in, in modern Irish folklore. And um, we could test insect and animal activity and use of space and so on. So a marvellous artefact to have. And we can also be thinking about the um, household furniture that would be present inside these houses. Because a house isn't only a building, it's also the people and the things that are, are within it. This is the uh, early Irish law text, Creek Govlach, uh, from about 700 AD, on the property of the Mrigfair social grade. He has all the apparatus of his house in their proper places. A cauldron with its spits and supports, a vat in which the boiling of hot ale may be stirred, a washing trough, a bath of tubs and candlesticks, knives for cutting rushes, ropes, an adze, an auger, a saw, a pair of shears, a trestle, an axe, the tools for every season, every implement thereof unborrowed. You can't be having it from your neighbours. Uh, a grindstone, mallets, a billhook, um, all of these things, a hatchet, spears for killing cattle, a fire always alive. Candle on a candlestick without fail, full ownership of a plough with all its outfit, and he has a mill. Mm. Unfortunately, there are loads of words for tech or house in uh, early Irish sources, uh, and some of those words include tech tenid, a burning house. We had this beautiful roundhouse that we had built, that we used for research and for teaching and for thinking about early medieval Ireland um, and thinking about all of those things. Last May, uh, uh, 2019, 
some local rascals and rapscallions broke into the Centre for Experimental Archaeology and burnt it down. Um, but we were optimistic, like, you know, uh, after we'd finished cursing extensively, we said, what, what are we going to do now? Well, we now have a burnt house. We now have a burnt down early medieval house, which we can now match against the extensive archaeological evidence for destroyed structures in the past. Okay, I'm going to pass you on to my colleague, uh, Dr. Brendan O'Neill. I didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. Um, so, one of the uh, things that we wanted to test, and this goes back to what Aidan was saying about, we lived in the structure for about three days uh, with a group of master students. And what we wanted to do was to test different aspects of the house. So taking that idea of the fire and thinking, well, what is a fire if we break it down? So it's heat, it's light, and it's smoke. And uh, we wanted to live in and test these different kind of uh, qualities within the house. So we put lots of thermal sensors, humidity sensors, light sensors all around the house and then just lived in it, recorded absolutely everything that we did. I didn't record it, one of the students did, uh, and did it very diligently. And what we found was that uh, the light levels were very low inside the house, as you would suspect. But you got used to them very quickly when you came inside. After about 30, 40 seconds, your eyes started to adjust. And so a lot of kind of archaeological thought that might, uh, um, might maybe say, oh, well, you couldn't perform certain crafts in these houses because they're far too dark. Or you could only perform certain crafts around the doorway when it was open or against, up against the fire. Actually, what we found is, is that there was very, very little of the space in the house that was too dark to perform things. So we've done woodworking inside of the houses, we've done uh, uh, various different pottery production, cooking, all these different things, but also uh, smithing inside the structure as well. We set up a heart inside, in the, uh, um, an industrial heart for forging. We found is, is that in some cases, the activity provided the light we needed. You take the burning metal, you can see the metal here, glowing red hot, take it out of the forge, it lights up the whole space. And so it gives you, uh, uh, it gives you that, that, that kind of uh, glimpse that you need. Also, using the door and the fire together. Uh, um, so using the, the two together. If you imagine these roundhouses have a single entrance, usually facing towards the east. And what we have is a central fireplace in the middle. If you stand between the door and the fire, you're limiting the available light because you're blocking the light coming through the door. Actually, if you move to the other side of the fireplace facing the door, you get not just the light from the fire, but also from the door coming through as well. This points to us as saying that this is a space where you perform a, a task that you need a lot of light. But obviously that light shifts during the day. The house is a dynamic atmosphere. So an east-facing door will get a lot of lovely light in the morning. But as the day progresses, particularly in winter, that light is going to fade. And so it employs movement maybe around the space too. I might start a craft in the morning up against the doorway. But as the day continues, I move back towards the fire. And so we're now seeing a sense of life in this house, not just from the people, not just from the furniture, but now from the activities that are going on inside of it. When we were designing this house, we came across this word, which we're going to talk about a little bit now in a second. Um, and it's, it's essentially, it means it's the word for window. Uh, and we wanted to know, well, do we put in windows? Do we put in smoke catches? What kind of... Uh, uh, um, yeah, well, what, should this element be included? One of the problems that we faced was that we have no evidence for it. In the archaeological record, a house stops, if you're very lucky, in and around your shin. Most houses stop, <laughs> but stop at ground level. There are a series of post holes and divots in the ground. What we need to do is to come up with lots of different ways of imagining what this house might have looked like. And so one of the things we did was we looked at other structures from the same period, but that used different materials that survived better. And these are things like Cluckarn from Skellig Michael, they're kind of beehive corbel structures. But again, the corbel structure relies on the capstone in order to add pressure to solidify the structure. So it can't have had an upper smoke hole, and it's architecturally unsound if you put a window on the side of it. Similarly, there's other, uh, another site from County Kerry where you've got low sockle stone bases and put a central post hole that lightly held up an organic roof. Central post hole would preclude an oculus at the top, and there's no real place that we could see for windows. Uh, ultimately, we decided not to include it, but we're going to see now that there's a bit of a tension there between the texts and the archaeology. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, because uh, there is this window um, in um, early Irish um, texts, and I suppose from the texts 
the evidence would certainly suggest that there was a source of light through the um, roof. So when we look at this word, um, finog, which is still in modern Irish down there as finog, um, there is a sense, as I say, that it is a hole in the roof. We might think of it as a chimney, which let out um, that little smoke that was still left in the house and through which light um, came in. There is um, a... Uh, 9th century uh, story from medieval Ireland, a narrative, it's called the Battle of Moitira, and it's very much consistent with, this, with the idea that this finog was a hole um, in the roof. And the reason it is, is that it tells a story of a particular giant, um, and this giant is called Balor, and he lost an eye one day, and the way he lost the eye is that there were druids around a fire cooking up some magical potions. And Balor was very, very curious to see what was going on. So he came and looked, and he lost this eye. So clearly what was happening is that he was looking over the roof. He was looking through a hole in the top of the roof, and these potions um, floated up from the um, fire and um, um, hence, well, blinded him, basically. What do you think Balor looks like? What do you think this giant looks like? Okay, so that is our Old Norse word, wind eye, and that is what Balor looks like. Absolutely, as he is described in medieval Irish sources, very, very close to the original, but anyhow. So this is um, Balor, who looks across... Um, he looks across over the finog, so that's the word used. So clearly the potions are coming up and, um, and blinding him. Another word for window is a word called for lace. Um, clearly all of these different words must have referred to different kinds of openings. Um, the for lace, what that word means literally, is an over light. And um, we have various um, references to it, including um, down to the 16th century. There's a, a relatively um, famous account, for example, of a siege of Sligo by, indeed, Richard Bingham in 1595. And the annals of the Four Masters relate that um, bullets were basically fired at the far lace of the castle. So clearly what may have been intended um, there is um, the loophole of the castle. So this far lace, as a word, started meaning an overlight. So it started meaning, again, a kind of window um, on the roof, but it came to mean a window on the, on the wall. And I'll hand back over perhaps to Aidan again at this point. So we all have an image of people in the Middle Ages as basically smelly, dirty, um, uh, uh, and covered in, in vermin. Um, and that's true. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. I'm only joking. It's not. The, there's a strong sense in Irish archaeology, early medieval archaeology, and also in the sources of the, the desire for people to be clean, um, to preference for hygiene, uh, um, and to keep themselves clean. Now, that's not to say that they didn't suffer from stomach parasites, uh, whipworm, uh, occasionally bouts of diarrhea and so on because of poor hygiene practices. One of the ones being washing your hands, which is, as we all know, is very important. Um, the, so there is that. And then we have, have other things. We have descriptions in early Irish sources and narrative literature of the beauty of people, their shining black hair, their pale white skin, their red lips. These are all aesthetics. And these aesthetics uh, basically emphasize that uh, sense of cleanliness. Um, but it would be difficult to keep yourself clean inside uh, these structures. First of all, it's entirely organic um, and it's, uh, it's full of insects. Um, one of the things that we noticed, that, you know, a few years after we'd built our early medieval roundhouse, is, is that it smelled itself. It stank. Um, it smells of, of wood smoke and of, 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 of uh, rotting vegetation uh, and so on. And ourselves, we smelled. Um, if we ever did some experimental archaeology teaching in the Centre of Experimental Archaeology uh, and there was loads of wood smoke going on, uh, um, our colleagues, when we came back down to the corridor of the School of Archaeology, would be go, we'd say, you guys up at the centre? Um, and we said, yeah, we were. Or you'd shower and three days later you'd still be smelling the smoke coming off your, off your hair. So everybody, everybody would have smelled of smoke. To an extent, probably, that if everybody smells of smoke, you don't really notice it. <laughs> Okay, so 
The, but we also know that uh, from archaeological evidence that uh, the types of uh, 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 creatures that would be in, in these houses. The floors are actually quite clean in, in the archaeological evidence. People are actually trying to keep the floors clean. They're brushing the floors. They're keeping them clean. Um, there's no human feces, no human dung or animal dung being walked into the floor on people's shoes. So there's a concern of that. Um, there are uh, uh, the beds are warm and dry, but they're full of lice. Uh, um, uh, and there's a, a marvellous image from one of our early medieval sites, Steer Park Farms, where there's a little uh, um, collection of lice uh, at, the, at the door frame, just outside the door, where you could picture somebody in the springtime going through the hem of their clothes um, and uh, uh, um, you know, getting rid of lice. Um, outside, outside the houses, it's pretty, it's pretty dirty. Uh, um, because of animal dung and so on, there's uh, dirt, urine, so, so planks, butchery waste. This is all evidence that we know from uh, uh, from beetles. Um, and there, it's indistinct about where people went to the toilet. Um, there's a, a phrase in, in uh, the Death of Melodron, it's a 10th century tale, where a man swims out to a cranog, he waits in the darkness for the king to come out of the royal house, he's in the, in the middle of a feast, and the king comes out of the house to bend the knee. Um, and Melodron hands him uh, uh, a handful of nettles and the king wipes his bottom with the nettles and then goes, ow, Jesus, what was that? Um, and what have you done to me? And Melodron jumps up, holds a sword to his neck and, and extracts a, a promise out of him of something he, he wants to do. For me as an archaeologist, I'm not interested in all of the literary stuff. I'm just like, that's interesting. Place to go to the toilet. Where would that be? <laughs> we actually know from some early medieval sites that it would, because of the concentration of stomach parasites, uh, um, uh, intestinal parasites, that they may well be places that people actually either threw a bucket of, of, of dung from overnight, uh, or actually maybe perhaps a screened area, or perhaps open defecation. Open defecation is a big problem in the third world today um, because of hygiene problems. Um, open defecation seems to be the norm in, in early medieval learning. And I think I am handing over now to Sharon. Thank you. As Ian says, um, kind of people in early medieval Ireland seem to have lived in much closer contact with sort of excrement, both the, their own and that of the animals that lived around them, and with various types of bugs and beasties uh, than we do today. And they were certainly happier uh, talking about those kinds of things. They're very kind of casual references in the text to kind of, again, picking those lice out of your shirt, and also to picking, picking the lice out of your family member's hair, things like that. Um, it doesn't mean, of course, that they were necessarily happy, I suppose, with either the lice or with some of the filth that surrounded them. And you see in the text kind of, I suppose, a certain kind of negative attitude coming through sometimes. There's an early glossary text which explains where some words in Irish come from. And the word cack is just the word for feces or excrement. But it, it suggests anyway that that word cack in Irish um, comes from the Greek word meaning bad. It's not the correct derivation of the word, of course, but it tells you something about the kind of mindset of the people that wrote it, the kind of negative response they were happening. And also, of course, sometimes dung and, 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 and feces and things like that were associated with forms of humiliation. Aidan's already given you a kind of set idea of that. And also in our story of Brick Crew uh, that Moira told you about, who sits inside his glass conservatory while he's not always in there. There's a lovely part of the tale where he falls off his perch at one point into the dung heap, I suppose, that's down beneath him. And when he comes out all covered in filth, nobody can recognise him. And he gets a great little kind of laugh from that. He finally gets his comeuppance, really, by fallen and shift in some ways. <laughs> so um, there, there's that kind of aspect from it. And as well, where kind of you can see from it exactly where Brick Crew falls. The words that we've come up already, look, there's lar already there, and there's lists. So he falls into the middle of that kind of enclosure, the kind of the bank that's around the outside. So that's where they expected the kind of the dung heap to be, outside the house, but inside the walls. So the other side, I suppose, of kind of filth and dung and, and, and beasties and all of this is washing. Washing's a great subject. I get to do the topical bit for today. I kind of so, so here's my uh, here's my bit on a bit on the hand washing and the head washing. Um, Ireland isn't Irish is enormously expressive. They've got a word for it. They've got a word for the space between your fingers. So that's all you need to know about Irish. Kind of if there's if it can be if it can be specified, Irish does it. And we reckon that it has about kind of 14 words in early Irish for different kinds of washing. Uh, the word that's most common in modern Irish today, folk, um, has that general sense of uh, just a good, a good kind of soak all over your body. So it turns up in words for bathroom and it turns up for words as a shower. It's kind of like it's just an all over clean. 
In early Irish, though, the same word meant specifically washing your head, washing the hair of your head. And then those other 14 words go on to detail mostly kind of the different parts of your body that, would you, that you would wash. So the topical one is in life then, washes the hands or the feet specifically, washes those kind of extremities. And there's some more general words like nigeth. Uh, you could wash a, a utensil with a verb like that. You could wash your body. You could also wash the clothes and hang them out. And because Irish has all those different kind of verbs, it enables them to be much more specific sometimes about what they're talking about uh, than modern English can. And the lovely example of that is on the Last Supper. Um, Christ, of course, is washing the feet of the disciples. And the English version very simply says, wash my feet and my head and my hands, is what St. Peter says to him. And of course, Irish then is enabled to indulge itself in a number of different verbs for that. It says, indomukasa wash my hands, yeah, almost didn't need to say mokosa, my hands there, folk mohyaun, and ni molava, the general word are kind of just wash my hands. There's also this nice word that comes up and is a source of great kind of uh, amusement and sometimes contention from us. It's a lovely, so fluchreva, um, the first word fluch just means wet, and the second word is kind of, it's always a positive thing, it means kind of some kinds of cheer or um, pleasure uh, or joy or something like that so it's been badly translated here it sounds a bit rude it's a sort of the wet pleasure of something kind of that, that, that's coming up the wet pleasure of bathing it's interesting though that when you begin to think about it because it suggests that you're not just washing for practical purposes to get that kind of filth off you're actually at some level sort of enjoying that and, and, and there, there's some level of sort of soaking in the tub is just as much enjoyment and, and relaxation in medieval times as it would be for, for us today. The woman who bathed there, somebody goes out and gathers wood for their bath. So they're burning the wood, they're going to heat the water. So they're not washing in cold water, it would seem from the text anyway. And we also have these references to bathing stones. So um, Brendan will tell you more about how you might heat the stone, but the idea seems to be the same. You heat the stones, and with it, you heat the water. But you see the verb that's coming up with this again. Same verb is coming up with the kind of the wet pleasure of bathing. This lovely verb, fothrigud, is also a word for bathes or washes. But because it's sometimes used also of kind of plunging a spear way into someone, We've always kind of, as, as kind of textual scholars and people interested in words and text, I suppose, we've always thought that it meant kind of fully immersing your body in the bathtub and having a good old soak, a kind of to total immersion, the way that your kind of spear would go fully into somebody's body. The problem they now tell us is that nobody has ever found a bathtub in medieval Ireland. So we, they can't tell you about heating stones. So nobody's found a bathtub in early medieval Ireland. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's kind of it's one of the challenges. Uh, um, what what might one of these bathtubs have looked like? What might they have been made from? And if they're made from uh, organic materials, so if it's made from wood or something similar, or maybe a hide kind of thing, then we're just not going to find that surviving really. Or if we do, it's going to be very difficult to interpret. Uh, we find wooden components sometimes very waterlogged sites, but uh, trying to understand if this is a bathtub or not is a very difficult proposition. Um, equally, it could be uh, pits in the ground, but how do you distinguish a bath pit from a not-bath pit? It's very difficult to do. Well, we have in, in, in a huge amount on early medieval sites and, and sites from all periods, really, are burnt stones. Um, and although that doesn't seem overly kind of uh, dramatic and you kind of go, well, surely a stone can just get burnt, they're very usually very specific types of stones. They'll be water-rolled stones and they'll be stones that can accept heat. These will be igneous or metamorphic stones, stones that are born of heat or have been heat-treated, so they can accept heat without exploding. Other sedimentary stones, say a flint or something like that, you put it under heat, it'll explode. It's not a great way to start your bath. <laughs> so um, uh, we've, we kind of run a series of informal uh, kind of experiments to try and look at these. Basically what we're interested in is how long does it take, how complicated is it, um, kind of how many stones do you need, little kind of small questions like this. Um, could you, like a small bucket like this, could you heat this up very efficiently? During my PhD, I did a series of experiments, what are called pot boilers. Pot boilers are stones that are used to boil water in pots, 
as the logic goes. They're usually tiny little pebbles, and uh, I tried it lots and lots of times, tried to get heat into this uh, ceramic vessel, and um, it just wouldn't work. And then we went to talk to some engineers, did some calculations, and it turned out you'd need to put more stones in than there is space inside the pot, and by quite some way. On the other hand, we have uh, uh, something like this. So we've got a, a bucket of water and these pieces of granite here. And with relatively few pieces of granite, in a normal domestic hearth like you see here, wood fire, you just leave the stones in for a few minutes, they take on the heat, kind of like a battery absorbing that energy, and they can transfer it into the water very effectively. You can bring water to boil in, in a very, very short amount of time, um, but you can also just heat the water quite gently with it as well. Um, and so, so uh, the logic of these stones being used kind of becomes apparent. Another thing is that these stones are degraded. They're degraded because of heat, but they're also degraded because of that quenching action. They're going from uh, warm to cool, relative, uh, relatively speaking, actually serves to break apart these stones. And it'll do it very dramatically. After one uh, uh, instance of heating and cooling with a piece of granite, it's highly likely you can pick it up and break it with your hands afterwards. Granite, a very hard stone, but very easily broken. Oh, good, it's media. <laughs> As if it was planned. So, uh, the next thing we want to talk about is metalworking, um, particularly things about uh, tools, skills, craftsmanship, and, and blacksmithing. Um, I'm interested in this because my study area, but I'm also interested in it because there, while there are, is, are some allusions to it in the text, like you're going to see, them allusions uh, can be complicated for an archaeologist uh, to try and understand. The kind of questions that we ask uh, in archaeology is, uh, where is this activity being performed? Uh, Aidan talked about the rats or ring forts. Sometimes we get annexes attached onto the side of them, horseshoe-shaped annexes. Um, sometimes they have lots of metalworking in them. Most of the time, they have nothing in them. And so we can't really say that this is a dedicated metalworking space. We found a few smithies. Uh, towards the later end of the early medieval period, these tend to be sunken floor types, uh, very common in Scandinavia and in Anglo-Saxon Britain, sunken floor structures. Um, but again, we don't find a huge amount of them relative to the amount of metalworking that we, might, that we, that we know was happening. And so, is it temporary? Is there a, a wandering smith going from place to place? Is there only a few numbers, a small number of smithies that people are going to and traveling to to, to, to get products from them? Uh, we just don't know, is the simple answer. This is uh, one text that kind of gives us, a, 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 I suppose, a, a window. Into um, a window into what this uh, uh, craft might have looked like, and it's uh, exemptions of the sledge, a hammer, an anvil, and it describes this scene of smithing. And um, Brian Scott uh, uh, has this in one of his publications. He wrote the book on early Irish metalwork, and he describes this as a kind of a chaotic, frenzied scene with animals nearly getting underneath your hammer and people everywhere, and just this kind of uh, uh, yeah, very frenzied work environment. Uh, on the other hand, we would interpret this as a, a kind of vignette, a, a, a composite of various different pieces of action. They're trying to, in one text, get in a lot of the dangers. Not necessarily that it would present itself at the same time, but that might conceivably come up uh, through the course of some metalworking action. Particularly interested in the one with the animals there, because it might suggest that some of the metalworking at least is happening in and around the homestead or the rat complex itself, where we don't find dedicated smithies, like I said, but we do find metalworking evidence. This might suggest that there's kind of uh, uh, farmers themselves are doing some of their blacksmithing, certainly making some of the tools for uh, their own needs. Some words that frustratingly don't come up but uh, are so common in the archaeological record are things like ores or furnaces that you would make the iron in, blooms, which hopefully we have an example here. A bloom. So when you smelt iron in this period, you do it in a shaft furnace, it's called a bloomery furnace. A bloom is just a thing that comes out. It's an unconsolidated mass of iron, and slag is the playful term that we use. But you can see when you cut it in half, it's just a big chunk of iron. It's a really effective way of, of making iron. It's very labor intensive, it takes about five to, six, five to seven hours. But you can see that you get good product from it then. 
plumes is a, a term that some archaeologists said that they can see in the text. Others say, you can't, you're crazy. Uh, charcoal does get a mention as part of the uh, necessary elements of a house. You have to have a, bar, a bag of charcoal for the irons. Um, and then other things, forges, tools, hammers do get mentioned sometimes, but things like uh, bellows and things like this. And the number one archaeological find for metalworking, slag, the waste product of smelting or metalworking. We find this by the, I'm working on a site at the moment where I have two and a half tons, or one and a half tons of this material sitting on a desk waiting for me back at work. <laughs> I know it's a huge amount of material. Imagine the amount of iron being made on this site. And yet uh, uh, these texts, which, which are so, um, so useful in some contexts, in this one context. So for me, it gives us an understanding of this craft, and it doesn't really come into the, to the consciousness of the people who are writing these texts, or maybe it's just uh, such an everyday occurrence that it goes unnoticed. We don't know, I genuinely don't know, but an interesting thing to think about. We thought we'd just look uh, a little bit at some words for the kind of vessels that you might have made out of some of those kinds of irons or, or uh, other metals, like sometimes coppers are described in the, in, the, in the early tales. We've got things like an omer or an amur, a tub for holding water. Um, we don't know too much about it, but it seems to occur in other words. And one of the nicer ones is this, a shmurimur. If you don't take anything away kind of from the language tonight, take this away. A bath of mara from crushed bones used in the treatment of wounded warriors. Um, that's the dictionary definition, so it has to be correct. Um, essentially, in the tales, I suppose, you, 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 you got sort of hacked down to the point of death, and then your fellow um, warriors would lift you up, put you into a bath in which other kind of crushed bones um, were there, and leave you and miraculously you would come out and be able to go forward. Some kind of medieval medical texts do, do um, place a lot of emphasis, I suppose, on the marrow for kind of the strengthening the bones. So it might be kind of related to that idea that there were particular healing properties in the marrows of bones anyway. For a particular point of view anyway today, it seems to be that same word. It's an amor, uh, it's a vessel, um, the same kind of thing that we get for holding water, but that one was maybe big enough to take a whole body inside and you can get smaller versions as well because your armor inlet seems to be the same thing up there but of course this is our verb inlet from washing the hands or feet so this is the medieval irish wash hand basin no question about it um, so those are some things that might be made out of out of iron but most commonly we have this word cora uh, it, it's in quarries like you find it in kind of geography and things like that today the kind of indentation that holds water in the same kind of way but cora is used in so many different ways throughout irish and indeed in scots gaelic today it's the word for a kettle in scottish gaelic um, in irish it's sometimes the boiler in your house and your heating system or it's a big kind of um, vessel or saucepan or something and, and you see it very often that's a picture from the Blasket Islands in the early part of the 20th century and they would hang these big kind of cauldrons uh, over the fire of course and, and it just keep it going all day it's also the word that turns up for whirlpools in something like Correbrecken you know off of uh, Jura in the Scottish Islands apparently George Orwell nearly drowned there in 1947 uh, so best known for that, but Cora always has that idea of sort of swirling, sometimes bubbling liquid, sometimes hot liquid as well. The fun part is when they get really, really, really big. Um, so kind of lots and lots of references um, in the early text and even more recently to very, very big Cora or Cori, the plural pots. Um, what you have there is, is a famine pot. They were provided uh, in the 19th century, really, by the Soup Kitchen Act for the alleviation of starvation, obviously, in the times of famine. And a lot of them still exist today as kind of a, a, a commemoration of that period. But in the early tales, we have also these references to enormous big cauldrons that make Aidan's cauldron here look puny and insignificant. Um, something like Cora Italaboin, a, a, a cauldron that could hold a cow. It's a great idea and you get the idea of chopping it all up and popping it all in, but it's probably some kind of misunderstanding really. You also get reference like Cora Darta, and a, a dart was um, a heifer, a young cow that was kind of less than a year old. And probably a Cora Darta originally was a, a cauldron that was worth as much as a young heifer rather than one that could hold a young heifer but of course kind of the imagination builds up and they they get portrayed as these these huge big pots 
From the text, you can tell quite a lot of the setup, really. Not much different from the kind of thing you might have seen in the Blasket Islands and in the early 20th century. So we have our cauldron over the fire there and a flesh fork uh, dipping into it. They seem to have always had three prongs, probably made of metal. And there's this lovely kind of imagery that kind of sticking the flesh fork in was a sort of lucky dip in a way. Uh, it was a gesture of sort of hospitality for anyone passing by that they would get to dip their flesh fork and take something but you only got one go. So if you didn't like what you got first time, tough. And, and also that idea that the cauldron itself was sort of acting as a kind of judge on you. It gives every man according to his worth. So if you pulled out kind of a mostly bone, slightly grizzly sort of piece, I'm sure everybody sort of looked at you scamped and thought the cauldron had been and judged you. But that's the kind of idea anyway of the flesh fork. One of the very common words for it is just fork. And that still exists in modern Irish. People often think it's just a borrowing from English and Irish hasn't got a word for fork really, but it's a very, very old word. It is actually a borrowing from Latin. But of course, when it was used in sort of early medieval tales, it would have been used to this fork for dipping into the coat of the great cauldron and for serving up meat <coughs> because personal cutlery really didn't come into the Western Europe till sometime in the 16th century. Um, so everybody before that was really kind of, no matter how noble you are, you were eaten with your hands. Um, but what were the eating made? <laughs> well, this was Ireland before the potato. So bread, bread was eaten by, by all, sorry. Bread was eaten by everybody uh, in every, <laughs> every um, everywhere in society, from the rich to the poor. Um, the, the commoner may have uh, something like an oat cake, which they're the ones that are in the little uh, thing there or the richer people would have a very nice uh, wheaten loaf. Um, it just depended on where you found society. Um, so in Ireland, we had four main um, crops, cereals. So wheat would have been the very best. Uh, we had barley, we had little rye, uh, we had lots of oats. And uh, we just presumed that people would have the, the lower classes. And the people living in the area that oats were more, most common in would have eaten oats. Um, but also, what, uh, also, you know, um, cereals were dried before they were milled. And quite <coughs> often in these um, corn drying kilns, um, it turns up a lot of uh, legumes like bean remains, pea remains. And it's presumed that these might have been grown with the wheat as a kind of nitrogen fixer that they would have been in the soil as a nitrogen fixer um, because certainly in later medieval Ireland we became very very good at growing wheat in Ireland and we uh, became the storehouse for the kings of England to send the wheat to um, to where their armies were fighting so that the, the men could be fed um, and but also uh, we have this equipment here like the kneading slab this this is a kind of this, my dough didn't turn out very well today because I used a very rough, um, um, a very coarse flour. But this is a kneading trough, so you get the idea. It's a kneading trough. Um, then there's, there's uh, the griddle, which is just a plain uh, piece of metal or, or slab of stone that you could, um, you could cook bread upon. So the ways we did cook bread, and we don't have a lot of um, evidence for this, but... Um, it would have been, could have been cooked on a stone. For instance, something like this Lisley biscuit, uh, which is uh, just a little round thing, could have been on a heated stone or on a girdle pan. It could have been uh, cooked that way. Um, then um, uh, under a pot. So you could actually put um, a bread that had wheat or had um, a raising agent in it under a pot and create create a little cooker. And we've done this in uh, the Centre for Experimental Archaeology. I've cooked under one of these. And the reason we know that this might be the case is that normally when you have a pot like this um, and you're cooking, it's on the fire, the sooting is down here. But in the archaeological records, when we get a pot or the remains of a pot and the sooting is on this part, we know the fire was, was, was closest to this part. So obviously it was inverted and something was put inside. So we've tested, um, we've tested the theory, and yes, we have produced bread. Um, oh, yeah, look, it's here. Uh, we have produced bread. That was a bread. It wasn't the most wonderful looking bread, but it certainly <laughs> tasted, tasted like bread. 
Um, but also, as well as, as that, and that would nowadays kind of be like a Dutch oven, you know, we have bastables that we cook bread in. Um, but also there were ovens, of course. And uh, a bread oven could be uh, a mural oven in a castle or a, in a large house. Or it could be um, a bread oven out in the open air. And quite often they were in the open air because of the risk of fire. And sometimes they, they were against a building. And sometimes they were, um, they were like a, what I like to call a hemispherical clay-domed um, oven uh, that would have, bread would have been cooked in. And part of my research is looking into the whole idea of these bread ovens. And I'm also looking at them in England as well as in Ireland um, just to see. And I'm also, as part of an, because I'm an experimental archaeologist, I'm building one of them in the Centre for Experimental Archaeology in UCD. Um, internally, it's 1.3 metres, and it, it will rise up to about this height. So it's, it's quite a large um, one, and uh, I am hoping to have it finished in a few weeks and to do my testing, test various fuels and, uh, and all of that. Um, but hospitality was very important in early medieval Ireland, and uh, somebody already mentioned the Crick Ablock. I think it was... Um, I think it might have been Aidan, but I'm not sure. Um, and the Crick Ablock was uh, the law tracts we had. And the law tract said that any free, law-abiding citizen going through the country of Ireland, sorry, I should say man, uh, was entitled to hospitality. And so when he called to somebody's house, he was entitled to what we think is probably some form of bread. And I say that because um, we would have considered an oat cake a form of bread as much as uh, the other bread that you see here. Um, so the lowest grade of commoner would have been offered um, some bread with milk or cheese. Now you'll notice there's no butter there. Uh, and then the next one would be, um, he would have been offered uh, the same milk cheese, but he would have been given um, a pitcher of, of um, sour milk or something to, to drink. Uh, butter only came into it as he went up the ranks. Butter first appears several, several grades up and only on a Sunday. So, and the reason for this is that butter is made from cream, and cream is the very best part of, of the milk because it rises to the top, and the most expensive part, and people were very careful about their butter and about who they gave it to and who, who was entitled to it. But also in these laws it said that if somebody was, went to somebody's house and they were entitled to something and the person didn't have that to offer them, they were allowed to basically sue them. Um, so they'd get a, a, a bad reputation. So in Ireland, um, we, have, we have evidence for bread in early medieval Ireland. One piece of evidence, and this man is holding it, Mick Monk, found this piece of bread very excitingly around 2008, 2009. Uh, he found it in a place called Lee in County Cork. And we call it very lovingly, the Lisley biscuit. And so when it was analyzed, they, know, they, saw, they, 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 um, they saw that it was made from a mixture of uh, oats and a byproduct of uh, buttermilk. You know, when you, when you, uh, you can turn buttermilk into uh, curds and whey. So it was made from uh, oats and whey. Um, so we decided uh, last year, uh, my colleague Dolores was involved in this as well, uh, we decided that we would make um, some of the Lisley biscuits. So we made them and cooked them. And then I thought, well, it's a shame not to have the, the curd as well. So I decided that I would put the curd on just for, just for photographing it. But I don't see why they wouldn't have served the curd in it because it's a bit like a cottage cheese. And it's, it's actually quite delicious. Um, so we, yeah, we made we made the Lisley biscuit, and in the archaeological evidence, there's a slight curve, and I love when I cook these these little biscuits um, that you quite often get a little curve in it. Um, so that's my my Lisley biscuit, and now I am 
Handing over again. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about the words that we have to do with um, serials. I mean, on some level, it's, it's clearly the case that serials are probably underestimated um, in terms of um, what we think about medieval um, Ireland, because, of course, the prestige diet would have been one based on meat consumption. But grains were consumed in many forms, um, as we've just been um, hearing. And the basic medieval word for bread was aron, as you have here, um, which is the word in it is ar, which means ploughing. So it really highlights, illustrates that kind of intimate, intimate connection between kind of agriculture, cultivation of cereals, and um, foods and the like. There were various different grains referred to in texts. I mean, oats were probably the commonest ones. Um, as far as the textual evidence is concerned, the best bread, so the bread um, eaten by um, the kind of upper classes, as it were, um, was certainly wheat bread. Barley is also mentioned, but barley is usually mentioned um, in connection with some kind of penitential diet. There's also rye mentioned, but rye um, um, allegedly at least is a kind of poor man's bread. There is also references in um, texts to paying taxes in bread. Now there is an idea, and the word used um, when we get a reference to a tax is tort. Um, tort is a borrowing from Latin torta, meaning um, loaf. Um, we still have it in modern Irish in, the, in a diminutive form, 13, which means um, a little um, tart. And we also have reference in, um, to this little tart in one very nice text, which um, tells us about a particular woman um, called Leverham. And we're told that she could travel the length of Ireland um, in a single day. But she had an enormous appetite. And this kind of kept her going, enabling her to kind of travel the length of Ireland in a single day. And one text tells us that she used to eat a thirteen, a little tart. And her little tart, as it were, was the size of 60 loaves of bread, which we're told were baked at a single um, sitting. Um, Old Irish penitential texts, and there are quite a number of those um, surviving, they stipulate that the penance um, in the form of bread is a barion. That's the word um, that they use. And that gives us modern Irish, you have it up there, bordin, which gives us bordin black, which is one of the few words borrowed from Irish into English as barm brack. So the kind of the uh, word behind that, as I say, is um, the word um, used for this penitential um, type of um, bread. But we get lots of different clues from medieval texts about this barion. Um, again, the text would indicate that this was the kind of bread baked on a griddle. And there are references um, to griddle slices to take this barion um, off the um, griddle. And one law tract. Um, talks about a barion bam inne, so a barion or a kind of loaf, as it were, baked for a woman, and a barion um, fer inne, a barion, a loaf baked for a man. And I'm not going to tell you which of them was the biggest, but you can, um, but you can um, guess. We also get references to different kinds of barion which were baked um, for special occasions. And we also know a little bit about what they ate with these um, barion. Um, this text that we've been talking a little bit about, um, Brikju, the one um, with this um, poisoned tongues, Brikju, um, we're told in that text that the, the, the food given to the best warrior, as it were, were lots and lots of loaves, 100 loaves, as you have it there, baked in honey. Um, we also get references to um, bread with the accompaniment of butter. Um, but as um, Maeve mentioned, um, this, is, um, relatively, um, this is relatively rare. And we have references to what might be garlic. Here we have a reference to 16 cloves to each loaf, but cloves of what? And Somebody else might be able to answer that. Who <laughs> could it be? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we actually talked a little bit about this previously. Uh, and of course, Maeve um, baked a loaf with 16 cloves in it. Um, I don't know if you've had a little bit. When we did kind of when we, when we did this experiment last time, and and we we got a waft of the smell coming off the bread and a taste of the bread, the immediate thought was that couldn't be right. 
you know. I mean, the, the loaves obviously can, can vary a little bit in size, um, but they're, yes, please, I have several pieces. They're, they're, they're surprisingly strong in flavor. So the question I suppose came about, is it a clove uh, and is it garlic? Is it a clove? Um, maybe to address that, first of all, sometimes this kind of this reference to the, what we take to be the 16 cloves has been translated as 16 flakes or 16 slivers, something like that. Um, I think kind of we, we would probably, kind of from a linguistic point of view, think that it probably is a clove. Um, the couple of reasons, I suppose, first of all, it's a unit of measure. Um, and they tend it to be sort of something that was predetermined in a way, something that was objectively defined, not something, you know, one person can cut a bigger sliver than another. It's a sort of how long is a piece of string kind of idea. So uh, probably given that it's a unit of measure, it's something that's uh, naturally occur in a natural kind of segment perhaps. And also the word that's used um, in this instance here, um, for, for what we take to be a clove is the same word that means kind of a nail. It can be a fingernail or a toenail. It can be a talon of a bird. So the shape's right and very kind of suggestive of a, of a clove of garlic. And we find it used kind of later on. This is from a medical text in maybe sort of the 15th, 16th century. And of course, this is a borrowing of the word for garlic that is being used along with. So certainly in that instance, it's a clove of garlic. The difficulty is, of course, that we haven't got this garlic borrowing word in the text that we have. So we've got a whole range of words really for for vegetables, I suppose, of that kind of same family that occur in the early text. And it's very difficult to know really what's in question. It's sometimes difficult to know, even if they're using the words consistently. I'm always kind of reminded of that when my husband, my Scottish husband calls kind of a can of Coke um, a can of juice, right? So, you know, we, we don't always use the same words even today to refer to the same things. So we've got all of these kind of um, vegetables uh, any one of which might be a garlic, an onion, or a leek. Well, um, the native plants are sometimes something like a borlus, is literally just a, a swollen plant. It's, it's basically descriptive. There's not a lawful yelp. You can say um, it, it might be an onion, it might not. Crave is a nice word. We sometimes think that this might be wild garlic. Uh, it occurs in the name of a particular kind of festival, which something like Crevis, garlic feast maybe, or something like that. That's the derivation. It happens before Easter, and at, at it, you eat a lot of garlic and you drink a lot of milk, basically. So I'd suggest maybe that that is when the wild garlic is coming around. Sometimes people maybe know more, more about the kind of the, the, the provenance of wild garlic, but that's what the, what's the kind of thinking. And then we have words like canon. And subgroups of them, I suppose, you can have it round, you can have it green, I keep thinking that might be the leek, you can have it true, which is helpful, isn't it? Um, and that, of course, is the word that's in question in the reference we have to the 16 cloves. So it's really 16 cloves, 16 nails of true canon, whatever that might be. If it were wild garlic, of course, it would be a bit milder than what's been actually put into the, the, to the kind of bread today, something that you, you pick up in, in Tesco. So, so the difficulties, I suppose, from a linguistic point of view, we thought we'd end up today, maybe we're looking at some ideas of fashion. What were they wearing? How was their hair? Um, Brat is probably the word that's most closely sort of associated with, with, with clothing, kind of right through Ireland, perhaps from earliest times to kind of more recent times. Um, it still occurs today in terms like brat orlar, which is the word for a carpet, brat snachta, a layer of snow. So it tells you quite a lot about what a brat must have been like. It's not just a cloak in a way, but something that would lay flat really and that would cover everything that was underneath it. I put in the middle a picture of a jumper burning because it was the closest thing I could find to represent the idea that sometimes when that young Irish woman went to the United States in the early years of the 20th century, supposedly anyway there are reports that they, they burned the cloaks that they took with them and adopted kind of the shawls in more modern fashion. But we've got some, some photographs from kind of early times, we've also got some prints from previous centuries. A lot of them would suggest to you perhaps that they were quite drab and dull items of clothing and nothing of the kind really as far as we know. There are, certainly there were red, green, blue cloaks sometimes associated with different parts of the country in Ireland and even from earliest times uh, they seem to be preferring things that are often brightly coloured. Even uh, Caesar said that the Celts of continental Europe uh, liked kind of highly coloured sort of fabrics. 
Uh, I've just given you there a selection of some of the terms that occur in early text, but you can see that they're grey, green, yellow, red, blue, and the one that stands apart is the purple cloak. It occurs only with reference to royal figures. Uh, there's often been questions asked of why this is, why this is the colour that is set apart. The word corker, the kind of the word for purple um, in, in, in Irish, well, early, in early Irish, is a borrowing from Latin porpora. Yeah. So perhaps there's a kind of classical um, influence behind the kind of the, 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 the great value placed on the colour purple um, throughout Irish. So the idea is, I think, that it was probably came from some kind of shellfish. But uh, an archaeologist knows more about that than me. <laughs> Yeah, as Sharon said, it's a borrowing as such, but it's also more than that. It's a little bit, I'm bringing the material evidence to it. And uh, research was carried out in 2016 by a Dr. Neve Whitfield. And in her article, Neve used history and philology alongside uh, archaeological uh, testing and analysis on to suggest the use of the colour purple as an Irish elite. It was borrowed from Roman as early as the 5th century. So we know, as Sharon said, it's documented, it's well documented, and the source of the colour comes from a marine snail called Nucella lepillus, or the dog whelk. So we ask ourselves, was this the question for Ireland? In the, in the Whitfield article, Neve highlights numerous west coast of Ireland scattered shell middens. And among these middens were the Nucella lepillus. Now, I have a little example here. And the procedure is where the top whorl is broken off, the gland is pushed up, and it's spread across the cloth. Or um, it's, it's, it's called milking the mollusk. This procedure, as I said, it breaks it off, it pushes it out, and the shell, the Nucella lepillus, from the scattered uh, middens did actually have exhibit uh, where the whorl was broken off. Now, when it's, it needs to be very fastly applied across the cloth because it changes from um, a, a yellow to blue to a very fast purple. It's a photo oxidization process. As I said, it's uh, highly labor intensive from the gathering of the shells to this fast application with only about 14 to 15 milligrams from each shell. So the next step for these shells in the Whitfield research was that they were reviewed by radiocarbon dating at Queen's University in Belfast by Emily Murray and Finbar McCormick. And a date range was obtained for the 5th to the 8th centuries. Now, although there is some problems with uh, the calibration of marine carbon, the historical sources <coughs> provide a contemporary reference in the form of the Venerable Bede in his 8th century ecclesiastical history of the British people, when he comments on the abundance of dye-producing dog whelk sites on the shores of Britain and Ireland. So we have our material evidence, we have our historical evidence, and they're quite strong for the use of purple as a colour in early Ireland. Now a second recorded Roman method is redissolving the pigment in a fermentation vat of stale urine, lime, but there is no recorded or physical evidence for that being the case in Ireland. Now, if we move towards the other colours, we have the reds, the blues, and um, should I move? Let's see here. That's an example of the brass there. Um, we are, again, archaeology has turned up madder and woad seeds. We have the madder seeds, which dye red, the woad seeds, which dye blue. Edel Brannock writing in 2014 draws attention to a tax that was applied to the importation of madder into early medieval Ireland. Now the two strains of the madder plant, the uh, native the, and also the deliberately cultivated uh, dyers madder. Archaeology submits evidence for this in importation into Ireland in the mid 8th century as traces were detected in French imported eware. So our third colour, our blue, 
with several sites, as I said, where it turned up woad seeds, and we also have the example of a domestic tale from the life of St. Ciaran and his mother with her dye vat. Now, this is a tale that's featured in the Irish life of St. Ciaran from a manuscript called the Book of Lismore. It's a patron book, it's a taken, it's a late 15th century, and it's copied from an earlier uh, textual source. However, care should be given to how these lives have travelled through time and therefore the onus is on all modern researchers to pursue these lives with a critical eye and to ask ourselves not what the lives say about the past but rather what they reveal and how they functioned and were received in their very own present. In order to illustrate this functionality of reception, I just want to outline an episode from the Irish life of St. Ciaran. It was written in Middle Irish, in contrast to the other lives, which were all written in Latin. It had a homily introduction, and the only one had this tale of St. Ciaran, his mother, and his mother's woad uh, divat. Woad is a yellow-flowered plant that in conjunction with a timeline of processes has a one to two week lead in um, pre uh, preparation. It's quite a complex, lengthy process in order to achieve a rich blue color. So you're basically running through your plant, your, your uh, planting in the spring, you're harvesting in the summer, you're taking the leaves, you're boiling them together, um, you're add it in, simmer for 10 minutes, then you remove, and you're putting a separate mixture together, which is of plant ash and water, and you're adding them in together. But however, if you do get the temperatures wrong, as we'll see from the tail, that there is consequences as such. Okay, the vat is aerated through constant stirring over a two to three year, pe uh, year period, sorry, two hours. <laughs> And it's allowed to settle, it's distilled, the dye settles in, and then it's placed into more water and the cloth is then added. When the cloth is removed from the vat, it undergoes again, like the dog whelk, that photo-oxidisation period, going from yellows to greens to eventually deepening into this vibrant, luxurious blue colour. So, if we return to the tale of St. Ciaran, and judging by its details, it appears that St. Ciaran's mother had already completed the lead-in time and she was about to put the clothes into the vat. So I've used a 1994 translation of the tale by Marie Herbert. And I just read out here, <coughs> excuse me, on a certain day, Ciaran's mother was making blue dye and she was on the point of putting clothing into it. Whereupon his mother said to him, out with you, Ciaran. It's not considered auspicious to have men present for the dyeing of the cloths. So we're seeing very pagan leaning, we're seeing gendered labour. So Kieran answers her, well mother, let there be a grey stripe upon it. Of the amount of cloth that was put into the dye, there was none without a grey stripe. Now what happened here is the pH level wasn't correct. It needs to be more alkaline in order to produce the blue. Dye was made again. His mother said to him, go out now, Ciaran. There'd be no, no grey stripe on it this time. And he said, Alleluia, Lord. May my mother's blue dye be white. Every time it comes to me, me, maybe it as bright as bone. Every time it comes to be boiled, maybe it as white as curd. Indeed, every cloth that went into it after that was completely white. So I did mention in the processes that if you're boiling the plant ash and you're putting it into the strained um, mixture from the leaves, and if you don't do it at the right temperatures, you will get white cloth. So poor Ciaran's mother, she's rushed, she's harried by this saint of a son. <laughs> so makes the dye, she makes the dye a third time and she says, Ciaran, do not ruin the dye for me this time, rather let it be blessed by you. And of course, naturally enough, all levels of the processes were correct and they got a beautiful blue dye. Now, it reveals a very strong organic kinesthetic imagery at this. It's relatable and it relates to early medieval Ireland. It has, it's a tale with a public function in 
and around a saint's life. The other lengths that I have, the other that I have, length, fringe, quality, versatility, these are all component parts of a mantle. Length, you're looking at changing over time. Fringe, you're looking at either detached or you're looking at different silks later in the medieval. And as Sharon said, you're moving then to becoming a more female. It's a longer, like the Kinsale cloak. So if you want to join afterwards, I do have examples down below. And um, thank you very much. Thank you.